0: Do you guys like those uh, competing church shi- signs as you came in this morning? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I just rolled in like this is a weird situation. I, I advocated for just combining, so Salt City Church, Vertical Church, and then the Irish Dance Club just all in one, <laughs> but Hannah, Hannah didn't go for it, so would have been fun, blame it on Hannah. Um, but no, vertical churches, they're awesome, so they meet here regularly, so we're kind of invading their turf, uh, but they are, at least their staff, I won't, I won't put it on you guys, their staff is at least more godly than our staff is, and so in response to us invading their turf, they bought us donuts, yeah, I, it, that's, that was my reaction, I was like, I literally never would have thought of that. Um, but, so they're going to be in the courtyard after this. Vertical Church bought us donuts. Uh, they're, they're a really cool church. We, we love them a lot. So I actually just want to take a second, Corin, this doesn't count towards my time, and I want to I pray uh, for <clears throat> Vertical Church, all right? Would you guys, would you guys pray with me? I want to I pray for them. They're, they're meeting right now as well. God, thank you for Vertical Church. Thank you for Chris. I, man, I love that guy. I, I love his heart for you. I love the passion that he has for the gospel and how he wants you to be front and center. Thank you for that church. Thank you for uh, the fact that they've done well as a startup in the city and pray that as they meet, spirit, that you would do unique things in the hearts and the lives of the people there, Um, that you would change lives. Maybe that somebody would come to know Jesus and God pray for the influence of that church in the city. Pray that they would impact people, that they would be a bold witness for the gospel, that they would also care for people practically in the needs of the city. Thanks, Jesus, that we're not the only ones here. <laughs> we, we love Salt City. We want you to influence and impact people through this church. <clears throat> um, but we also acknowledge that we're not the only thing going on and not even the primary thing happening in the city. You have a ton of people in the city that you're working through and a ton of churches and we praise you for that. We're thankful to be a part of a significant work that's happening here and um, grateful for what you're doing in the life of our church and in the life of Vertical Church. Yeah, Lord, we love you. Amen. All right, so we are finishing up our series and uh, on controversial topics. And some of you are bummed about that, and some of you are like, yes, finally, let's move on. Um, but so we've been talking about, yeah, different, different kind of hot-button topics, uh, and, and I just wanted to start out by saying, look, we know that there, you probably have more questions than you have answers after this series, and that's actually intentional, okay? So the goal of this series was not to sort of just top-down tell you, like, this is exactly what you believe, just kind of accept that and kind of tell you everything, There's not enough time for that. So the goal of this series was to just get you thinking and to generate discussion. And so I'm hopeful that you guys have the type of community in this church that you have people to talk with about this stuff. And not only talk with, but talk honestly with. And have open discussions. Maybe have some disagreement. Keep processing stuff. That was actually the goal. So if you have more questions than answers, that's actually okay. That's part of what knowing God is like. God is mysterious. We can't figure him out. And so we just keep searching and trying to understand him, right? And so uh, this morning, what we're talking about is sex. So let's talk about sex. There's so many jokes that I wanted to say right there, but I'm trying to be self-controlled. Felt like a junior high boy writing this sermon, just kind of giggling to myself as I was writing stuff. But I'm not going to say most of the stuff that I wanted to, because this is church. Um, but uh, for a lot of you, like, or I don't know, if a lot, at least some of you, it's weird to talk about something like sex in church, it, which that's fair. Uh, but we want to be a church that, like, talks about, quote, unquote, taboo subjects because Jesus has something to say about it. So it's worth talking about. And so we want to be able to go there together because we trust each other, right? So we're going to talk about that today. Now, most of us in this room know what the Bible has to say about sex generally, right? So what the Bible has to say about sex is that it's a beautiful, good thing that God created in the appropriate context, and that that context is a marriage between one man and one woman. So... Most of us know that. If you didn't know that, now you do, okay? Well, I'll just be like straight up with that. And it's this idea that it's a beautiful and powerful thing, but only when it's manifested in the appropriate context, right? So the, the classic analogy that I'm a little leery of because like every youth pastor ever has said this analogy, so it's a little cliche, but it's actually really good, is the fireplace analogy, right? That, that sex is like a fire, And it's a beautiful thing when it's in a fireplace. It's warm, it's comforting, it's good. But when it's outside of that fireplace, it'll burn your house down. And and that is somewhat true. That sex in the appropriate context is an amazing thing. Outside of the appropriate context, it can ruin your life. So that is what the Bible has to say. Now... And, and I, I actually, real quick, also want to say that that goes not just for the physical act of sex, but it also includes what's going on in your mind and your heart. So the the verse that we'll be talking about is 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to get there in a minute. You can flip there with me if you want. Uh, actually, I'd love it if you would flip there with me and kind of follow along. Um, but in there, Paul talks about sexual immorality, which is, which is the term pornea, which is a catch-all term for all sexual immorality that includes lust. And Jesus actually defined, I think in some senses, the word pornea in Matthew 5 when he talked about what purity looks like. And this is what Jesus said, that if you've even lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So what is he saying That it's not just your actions that matter, but it's also your mind and your motivations, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, why, because God sees everything. And so he sees that corruption, not only externally, but internally. And so the the call to purity in our lives is not just for the physical act of sex, but also what's going on in our mind and our hearts. Now, I should be able to be done with this sermon, three-minute sermon, walk off the stage. Why? Because I said what the Bible has to say, and that should be enough for us. But here's what's true, is there's this massive discrepancy between what at least the majority of us would claim to believe is true and that we would affirm as good and the way we actually live. So, so if, if you could take a survey of what we all claim to believe, but the amount of purity that's actually present in our actual lives, you would see this massive divide. So this sermon isn't primarily about sort of what the Bible has to say, of course it's about that, but it's about more than that, about how do we actually live like that, how do we actually believe that? Why is it that there's that that tension there? That's the fight for sexual purity and and living sexually the way that the Bible calls us to is in that tension between what we know to be true and how we actually live. And and I think why that's so hard for us is because it's really hard for us to believe that when God gives us boundaries on things that it's actually for our good. Like, Like when we sin sexually, in that moment it's because that seems like it's the best life possible. And that's true for all sin, by the way, not just this one. And, and so what happens is, is we wanted to have sex or we wanted to lust and we were convinced in that moment that that was good and so that's what we did. Sexual sin is like a box of chocolates. Yep, hard shift, that's how I roll. Um, so, You look at a a box of chocolates and that chocolate looks delicious and it looks amazing from the outside, but then inexplicably there's no description of what is inside of the chocolates. You know what I'm talking about? And so then you bite into one thinking it's going to be this delicious chocolate and you get that nasty like cherry filling. And there's like two of you that like that, we'll talk later, but most of you understand that that is disgusting, right? So that's what sexual sin is like. Is that that it looks enticing, it looks good, and and but then when you actually get into it, it's gross. And I feel like some of the way that we kind of caricature or stereotype God is like he's a dad that is telling his kids no to chocolate just because he doesn't want, want them to have fun. Like God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. But what is he actually doing? He's warning you about the cherry. He's saying, I know you think that that looks good, but it's actually gross when you get into it, trust me. And so that, that tension to believe him in that is the same thing that the Corinthians actually struggled with. So again, 1 Corinthians 6, there's this beautiful paragraph with detailed logic from Paul about uh, what it looks like to be pure that I want to talk about. But all of that hinges on this objection that the Corinthians were giving him. In verse 13, it's that part that's in quotes. This is uh, the expression that the Corinthians were throwing around. Here's the expression. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Okay, so here, here's what they were saying. They were giving an analogy. They were saying, the reason why I get hungry is because my body was built for food. And so whenever I'm hungry, I should eat. Likewise, the reason why I have sexual desires is because my body was built for sex. And so whenever I have a desire, I should fulfill that desire however, whenever, with whoever that I want. So I actually think that there's two main objections that the Corinthians were giving to Paul about the kind of idea of sexual morality within Christianity which happen to be I think the same two objections that our culture gives us now and that every single one of us I think in this room have believed at some point or another. Here's the two objections. Sex is natural, so there should not be any boundaries on it. Second, sex is normal, so it should not be that big of a deal. It's just a normal thing. It's not that big of a deal. So let me take that first one. Sex is natural, so there shouldn't be any boundaries on my sexuality. This is really important. This is a classic cultural argument for a lot of things, and this is actually the same argument that your sinful nature will make to you likely today. Here's the argument, is that whatever you desire, whatever you naturally want is good for you and you should pursue it. And anyone who gets in the way of that pursuit or anyone who wants to put boundaries on that pursuit is bad and against you. If you want something, pursue it. So if you desire to have unrestrained sex, you should. If you lust after a woman walking down the street, that's just part of being a guy, it's normal. But saying that wanting something makes it good is actually a horrible conclusion to come to. If I wanted to drink a two-gallon drum of Diet Coke every day, that doesn't mean it's good for me. Parents, your kids, right? Like, okay, hey, mom, I want to go out into the street and throw sticks at moving cars. Sure, Johnny, have fun. If you want to do it, that'll be great. No, what do you say? You know, that's a bad idea for you. It actually doesn't matter what you want. It's not actually good in the end. Okay, ridiculous examples. Here's my point is that all of us understand that it's a very normal human thing to want something that's not ultimately good. And part of living the good life is restraining desires that might be good for a while, but will hurt you in the end. So there's two contrasting claims on what the good life is. Okay, so the first claim is the claim of culture. And here's that claim, is that you should live however you want. Pursue whatever desires you have, be happy, and that's how you'll get to happiness is by doing whatever you want. That's what true freedom is, is being completely unrestrained. The problem with that is that what you want a vast majority of the time is sin. And here's what Jesus said about sin, is that it's not actually freeing, but that it'll enslave you. Jesus said that sin will enslave you, but that he came to set you free. And so when culture is inviting you to pursue whatever you want, it's standing in a jail cell with shackles, saying, hey, come on in, it's fun in here, it's beautiful, come be free. And it wants to slap those shackles on your wrist. Here's the second claim about freedom. It's the claim of Christ, That true freedom comes not from doing whatever you want, but from learning to live the way that you were born to live. Learning to live the way that God created you with his good intentions. So when Jesus gives you boundaries around your sexuality, it's because he wants to give you a taste of freedom. He wants what's good for you. The battle is just whether we'll actually believe that or not. So here's what that looks like in my own life, is when I'm tempted to think about something that I shouldn't think about, when I'm tempted to look at something that I shouldn't look at, which I wish was less frequent, but it's a consistent fight in my life, in that moment what I think is, is that 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 thing or that thought will be really fun and it will be good for me because it'll be pleasurable. But so here's what I try and do, and I don't do it every time, but here's what I try and do is convince myself that that is not true. And so I step back from that situation, and I go, hey, the last time that I pursued this, was it actually good? And I think back, no, it actually was terrible. It didn't fulfill any of the promises that it gave to me. Okay, who wants my good in life? Is it Satan or is it Jesus? Who's telling me the truth and who's lying to me? Is it Satan or is it Jesus? What type of man do I want to be in the long run? The type of man that gives in to these things or the type of man that resists them? And I try and step back and convince myself that the good life is actually not pursuing my desires in that moment, but pursuing something better, which is knowing Jesus and being and living in purity. Okay, so that is the first objection from the Corinthians is it's natural and I should pursue whatever I want. The problem with that is that we're fallen beings that don't understand what's actually good. The second objection is this: What's the big deal, Christians? You get too fired up about this stuff. You're you're overly focused on it. Uh, you you preach about it too much. What's the big deal? It's just sex. And here's the baseline thinking: Is it's just a biological thing, the same way you eat. You drink, you hang out with people, you have sex. It's just a normal part of life. Quit making such a big deal. Okay, I want to read to you now 1 Corinthians 6, 13. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you would follow along with this, either on your phone or physically. It's pretty detailed logic that I'll try to unpack for you, but it's so good. The body is not meant for sexual immor- this is Sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 13. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, so there's a ton to unpack in there. Let me summarize it for you. Sex is not just sex. This is what this is saying is that That when you have sex, there's something spiritual, there's something mystical, there's something life-altering that's happening. Okay, so what is that life-altering thing? The answer is in verse 16. Look at that, and this is a quotation from Genesis. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here is the purpose of sex, to take two unique and individual things and to make them one to unite two souls together in a mystical reality that we don't totally understand but is absolutely real. So it's like welding something together. So you have two individual pieces of metal, you bring them together, you essentially melt both of them and they get molten and they mix together and join together in ways where they now are indistinguishable, inseparable and mixed together where you never can pull them fully apart again. It's not what our culture would tell us that it's like a paper clip. That you take two separate pieces of paper, you put them together, you clip them together for a time, and then any time you want, you can just take that paper clip off and go your separate ways. You're inextricably welded together. Question, why is sex like that? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so strong? It's the only thing in human nature that will do that. Here's why. Because it is a picture of Christ. Because it's a picture of Christ. So immediately after, verse 16 is verse 17, which says this, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Did you catch that? Let me, let me read that again. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, to know Jesus, to be in Christ, to be an authentic Christian is to become welded to Jesus to in some senses become one soul with him, where in a way you are indistinguishable from Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, how does that work? Seems, seems iffy. Stop trying to figure it out and be amazed. The point of this is not for us to figure out. The point is to stand back and go, that is incredible, this is a doctrine that the Western church has largely ignored because it's so mysterious and we don't like that but it's so good and it's all over the Bible. It's called unity with Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that you have the mind of Christ. That the Spirit is the only one that can search the mind of God and you now have the Spirit therefore you share a mind with Jesus. Colossians 3 says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. That your If you're in Christ, you're so wrapped up into Jesus that you can't really even see you anymore. When you look at you, you just see Jesus from an identity perspective. 2 Peter 1, 4, listen to this. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire that you may become a partaker of the divine nature. So this is what this is saying, is that sex is an analogy to a far greater reality. And it's this, that you, in knowing Jesus, can get wrapped up into his person. So now from an identity perspective, when God sees you, all he sees is Christ. And you now have the mind and essence of Jesus. That's wild, Here's a couple things that that can bring you. One of them, contentment. If you're married and your sex life isn't what you hoped it would be, you have Jesus Christ. You're united to him forever. It's okay. You can be content. You've got something better. If you're single, you do not need to have sex to be happy and be content. You are constantly bombarded by this idea that in order to be a happy, content person, you need to be having sex. Sex is fine, it's great, it's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And you have Him, you have Christ forever. And so that truth affects the way that we behave sexually. So I want to look back on verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So much good stuff in there. Question, verse 14, what's that about? Talking about sex, and then he says this, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Gotta love a random resurrection verse. Is he just like throwing that in there Just kind of for the heck of it? No, it's part of his logic. Okay, so what is he saying? Why does he mention the resurrection? Because this is what the Corinthians were arguing, is we're just physical bodies, kind of like animals, that will just live and die, and so we just need to have as much fun on this life as possible. And what is he saying? No, you are not just like an animal. You're not just going to live and die. You are an eternal soul. Destined for eternity forever with Jesus and the purpose of your body is to serve and love and be united with Christ forever into eternity. That's what your body was made for. Don't degrade it with sexual immorality because it was made for Christ. Sex represents that mysterious unity, unity with Christ. Let me unpack some implications from that. First implication, sex in marriage is worship, yep, sex in marriage is worship, okay, when you have sex as a married couple, God is there, and not just in like a, I know, it's, we're getting weird, we're going there, okay? <laughs> so, not just in like a, like God sees everything, knows everything way, in like, you are united with Christ, And then when you unite yourself with your spouse, you are uniquely demonstrating that unity with Christ through that physical act with your spouse. What you're doing is you're sealing the marriage covenant that you made where you promised I will never leave you. No matter what you do to me, no matter how much sin you have, I will never leave you. Why? Because Jesus will never leave you. And so you represent that promise that Jesus made to you with that marriage and then you sign on the dotted line, with sex within your marriage. And so God, when he sees that, delights in it. It's not a shameful thing, it's not a gross thing, it's a beautiful thing. And it's illustrating his character to each other. So I, I think this is true, that if you're married, you having sex with your spouse is equally worshipful as us singing after I get done speaking. But that feels creepy, right? That's weird. Some of that is just that's a like unique line of thinking and like all that. But I think some of that is because almost all of us, to some degree or another, think that sex is gross. So we talk a lot about the fault of thinking that sex. Is God like it, it becoming the centerpiece of your life, which obviously is a fault? But there's another ditch of thinking that a good thing that God created in the appropriate context is gross. I think there's a, a couple reasons why we think it's gross. One of them is abuse, one of them is unfortunate. The unfortunate reality is that there's a whole number of you in this room. Who have been abused, and sex will be connected with that in some senses in your mind. And I know this isn't good enough to fix what happened, but I'm sorry. And I know this is hard because it's so easy as a victim to, to put blame on yourself, but I want you to hear as much as you possibly can. It is not your fault. It is not. Your fault. I don't care what the circumstances are. It's so easy to do that thing. I should have been somewhere else. I should have been acting differently. I should have dressed it. No. I don't care what the circumstances are. You are a victim of a crime that has no place in God's world. And I'm sorry that you know what that's like. It is not your fault. You are not tainted. You are not gross. You do not have to be ashamed. You are a child of God. He loves you. He delights in you. You are pure in His sight. Second reason why sex can be gross is because of past sin, either with your current spouse or um, with somebody else. Do you believe God when He says that your sins have been removed as far as the East is from the West? We'll talk about that in a minute that your sin is gone, it can't touch you, it can't define you anymore. Another reason is just practical, because throughout your whole life, in a good way, if you've been a Christian, you've been trying to put boundaries between you and your sexuality. You've been trying to honor him, and that's a difficult thing to do, and so you've had to fight, and it's really hard to kind of overnight, one night uh, sex is against God's flourishing in your life. You get married the next night, it's part of his flourishing in your life. That's hard to flip that switch sometimes what we need is some practical solutions and that's okay to pursue those. This is a safe community to talk about that in the appropriate context in your community and get some help. But I think the majority of the time what we need is just better theology. For, for in, improvement's the wrong thing, that's not what I mean, but for improvement in the bedroom, what you need is better theology. You need to believe what God said about you, that you are pure that in that moment you are pure, that he delights in you, that this is a good gift from him, that it's part of his plan for your life? Okay, so let me apply this. Married people in the room, okay? Just talking to you for a minute. To married people in the room, here is a primary application of this message, is that you should have sex with your spouse as much as you can and enjoy it as much as possible. Yes, I said that. Let me prove it to you from the Bible. This is the Bible. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The men in this room have never paid so much attention to me. I've never had this much <laughs> eye contact. Okay? It's from the Bible. Okay, Song of Solomon, if you think this is a little bit weird or like we're going there, read Song of Solomon. It gets a lot more real than this. Song of Solomon is not just about sex, but it's about delighting in sex as a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 7 actually commands married couples to have sex with each other as a way of loving each other well. Okay, but let me give you a second implication. Sexual immorality is cheating on Christ. Sexual immorality is cheating on Christ. So immediately after the verse I just read you from Proverbs, in Proverbs 5, 20 through 23, it says this. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. In a similar way that Jesus is there when married couples are having sex, Jesus also sees and knows everything. And you are united with him. So when you look at pornography, Jesus is there. When you have sex outside of marriage, Jesus is there. When you cheat on your spouse, Jesus is there. We keep going. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Don't miss that last warning. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Okay, there are multiple times in the Bible where it says similar things to that and it says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what that doesn't mean that if you struggle with sexual sin, that you can't be a Christian. We all would be disqualified. But what it does mean is that when your heart gets consumed with love for something other than Jesus and you stay there, it will start to kill your love for him. So if you stay in unrepentant sexual sin, it will begin to control and dominate your life And because we are unified with Christ, because we have been joined to Him the way that two spouses are joined together, when you sin sexually, you are cheating on Christ. Even people who greatly disagree with us, with Christians, on our understanding of sexuality, would agree that there's something wrong with cheating right, that it breaks trust, that it, that it hurts at a level that almost nothing else can hurt. You do that to Christ as you participate in sexual sin. I do that to Christ as I participate in sexual sin. And if you don't care about that, if that doesn't bother you, I want you to consider seriously where you're at in your faith. So if I told you that a woman cheated on a man or a man on a woman and just didn't care, wasn't hurt by it, wasn't bothered by it, what would you conclude? That he probably doesn't love his wife. If you cheat on Christ and don't care, maybe we should conclude the same thing. Now, I can't conclude that for you. I'm not saying I know that. I'm not saying that anyone else can know that, but I'm saying you should search your heart and take that warning very seriously. But there's some of you in this room that hear that warning and you feel shame and you hate sin and you don't want it in your life but you're just trapped and you feel like you can't get out and it feels like it's dominating you and you feel beat down by sin and you feel gross. So, just me and I just closed on our, our new house this past week. So, I've been doing the homeowner thing. It's been something. I don't know if I like it or not, but... Uh, it's been a lot, uh, but I'm thankful for it. Um, but we've been changing out a backsplash. And so uh, we walked in like the day that we took possession, and I walked in with a hammer, and I was ready to roll, because demo seems fun. Other stuff, not so much fun, but demo seems fun. And you're like, you're not supposed to hammer a backsplash. I know, I know kind of. But you, like, when we went to like chisel it off or whatever, it wasn't coming off, and so we had to break it. So I just took a hammer to this thing and it was awesome. There was some sort of aggression that came out, I don't know where that was coming from, but it was, it was a blast. So we hammered this thing, we chiseled it off, we ripped it off in pieces and we threw it away, right? And then for the last several days, we, or I should say my father-in-law primarily, has been uh, meticulously placing tile on our wall, this brand new white, shiny, we went with white subway tile, hopefully that was a good decision, um, but Placing this brand new white subway tile on our wall. What would you do if I took a hammer to that? What would Gene, my father-in-law, do? He'd be, he'd be stressed <laughs> if I took a hammer to that after the last couple days. You'd be upset. It'd be cringeworthy. Whereas the old one wouldn't be. Why? Because you treat things that are white, clean, and shiny in a much different way than you treat things that are old and gross, right? This is what I'm saying, is that a lot of you have this perspective because of your sin or because of your past, because of your history, that you are gross, that, that there's shame in your life. And so what happens is, is you end up treating your body like it's gross. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, But this is what I want you to know, is that this is what Jesus does, is that he replaces the old with the new, is that he makes you clean, white, pure, new. And so part of fighting sexual immorality is not trying to clean yourself up, but it's understanding that you have already been made clean by Christ, that you're white, shiny, new, and pure, and learning to believe the same thing about yourself that God says about you. And as you begin to understand that you are in fact, in reality, because of Jesus, that you are pure, that you don't have shame to carry, that that past doesn't define you, but that Jesus' past defines you, then you can start to live like you actually are pure. An analogy that changed my life, that changed the way that I, that I thought about myself, and that it helped start to remove the shame that I felt because of sexual sin was an analogy from a pastor named Matt Chandler. And he gave this analogy, and he he talked about this woman who he ended up going to college with. She was a little bit older, had come back to school. And he sat by her in class, and he started sharing the gospel with her and him and his buddies tried to reach out to her, share the gospel with her. They babysat her kids and actually found out in that moment that she was in adultery, that she was having an affair. But they just tried to love on her and just tell her about Jesus. She had like no Christian background, no history with this, and so no reason to live any differently, right? And so they're trying to share the gospel with her and Chandler kind of sneakily invited her to this concert where he knew or it, there was gonna be a speaker that he hoped would share the gospel. And so they went, they listened to music, and then the speaker gets up and he says, I want to talk to you this uh, tonight about sex. And Chandler's just thinking, oh no. Like this is brutal. This woman is like sitting next to him, right? This is brutal for her to hear. And so he starts out by pulling out this rose. And he, and he smells it and he kind of feels it. And then he throws it out into the audience. And he says, all right, everyone like smell this rose. Make sure you feel it. Get a good sense of what it's like. And then he goes on this message. And it's the most sort of fire and brimstone, sort of shameful uh, message he had ever heard. Just trying to shame people into not having sex. And then his big point at the end of it was he said, where is that rose? And some kid in the back stands up with the rose And it's beaten up and the petals are falling off. It's just a mess. And he brings it down to the guy, and the speaker holds it and he looks at it. And his big crescendo, his big point, is that he holds it up in front of this crowd and he says, See, who would want this? Who would want something that's been used like this? Who would want this rose? And Chandler said that he got mad in the moment and it took everything for him to not yell out, Jesus wants the rose. Who would want the rose? Jesus does. That he doesn't care how shattered you are. He doesn't care how much of a mess you are. That he wants you, and not only does he want you, but he wants to make you beautiful. That not only does he want the rose, but as he gets you, you become whole and pure and beautiful. And here's the proof of that. This last crazy implication from 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 19 through 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. That is the proof that Jesus wants the rose. Unfortunate timing uh, of that. Um, That's the proof that Jesus wants the rose. When God came to get you, was it kind of a bad deal? Was it like he bought a used car and overpaid for it? No. He gave everything that he had, the very most precious thing that he had, the life of his son to get you. Why? Because you were worth it to him. You were worth everything to him. Not because that makes sense, but just because God's like that and because it matters. It matters to him. Listen to this thing that Paul said from 2 Corinthians eleven two. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I want you to know that if you've got a past that you're ashamed of, if you are in Christ, you are a pure virgin in Him. You get a restart. Brides wear white on their wedding day to to symbolize purity. And I've known some brides that have struggled with that because of a, a history of sexual sin. And this is what I want you to know is that you get to wear white because Jesus' declaration over you is more real than your history, than your past. And not only that, but one day you will be presented as his spiritual and eternal bride. We, the church, will be presented to Jesus, the great bridegroom, as his bride, and we will wear white to symbolize the purity that he's given us. Let me pray. God, thank you for that. (laughs) I haven't been pure. I haven't lived the way that you've wanted me to live. But you haven't held that against me. Thank you. Thank you for not holding my sins against me. Thank you that I don't, and that we don't have to live in shame. Thank you that we're not defined by the things that we've done wrong. Thank you that you were pure in every way that we're not, but that you give us credit for it. That's crazy. God, would you bring healing to a really delicate topic in our church? Would you bring healing to people that have had terrible experiences with sex? Would you bring healing to spouses in their marriage and their relationship? Would you be, bring healing to people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to honor you with their sexuality and are imperfect in that or don't fully understand that yet. Would you bring healing to all of us and help us to live in the freedom that you offer us through the grace that you've given us? We love you, amen.